Father, we're so thankful that we have an opportunity to study your word, to do that alongside uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ. God, I'm just uh, thankful that your spirit is the one that gives illumination to us, that it alerts us to what is going on uh, in the text, that you are imparting these truths to our heart, and that we are walking out these things in your strength, your power, not our own resolve. Father, would you help us to be more acutely aware of our need for you, our dependence upon you? Would you help us to be more gracious with those who are at a season of life, a period of life where they are struggling to walk out these truths? Help us to lovingly call them back into fidelity to your word. Help us lovingly, graciously sit with them, open your word with them, and to intercede with prayer on their behalf. Father, I'm thankful that we uh, live in a city that has many churches, and it gives us an opportunity to pray for them, to pray for their pastors. God, I pray that you would be at work in the hearts of the pastors of our community, that you would be just wooing them each day to follow you passionately, that their hearts would be found in you, not the adulation, the cheers, the applause, or the jeers and uh, failures that their people point out, but that their heart would be found in you, that their joy would be found in you and service to you. God, help them to be strong in your word. I pray that you would help them to shepherd their people well, that they would be this picture of, of Jesus, who's the good shepherd, that they would be with their people well, they would be pastoring them and serving them well in their administration of the word of God. Father, we pray for the churches of our community, that they would be strong, that they would be resolute, and that they would be a beacon for you of the grace of Jesus Christ, lavishly displayed. God, that they would be known for their impact to the community and not just for the shape and size of their building. So God, we pray for revival to break out in our hearts and the surrounding churches of our community. God, that you would help us to work better together, to partner for the gospel uh, well with other churches in our community. And I pray for our time this morning that you give us to study your word, that you would uh, awaken some of us. Uh, caffeine has begun to lag, and so God, we pray that you would help us to to stay awake, to focus, to concentrate, but we pray most especially for the work of your spirit in our lives, that we would constantly be placing ourselves again, once again, in submission to you and the role of your spirit and your desires for our heart. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Every other year, we have an opportunity to journey through our identity series here at Ridgecrest, and so we look at what it is to grow, what it is to serve, and, and ultimately what it is to go forward with the gospel. And so last week, we looked at the idea of spiritual growth, that we want to be those, we want to be those people who are growing in our faith and helping those around us to grow in their faith. And so spiritual growth is not primarily just this siloed expression of faith, whereby it's me, it's all about me and, and how mature and faithful I can grow to be, but it is about this outward extension of studying the word and growing alongside our other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so today, we begin to turn and, and focus our attention on the aspect of service. But let me just go ahead and tell you this, and let me just go ahead and, and dispel any ideas that you may have on service, that perhaps some of you have the idea that God is not pleased with you unless you're just absolutely killing it in service. 
And so this is kind of how you live, that if you're not actively serving, that you feel the ire, you feel like you have let God down. And so that's why you serve. And so maybe you grew up in a household where you come in and, and you would show your, your dad, your mom, your report card, and they would make some comment. I remember my first semester in seminary, I uh, went and I was telling my grandfather how I had done, and, and uh, I, I'd, I'd made an, an A or two A's and a B. I made a B in, in Greek. And uh, his response was, huh, couldn't get that third A, could you? Well, I mean working a lot, got married halfway through the semester, took a week off for the honeymoon, couldn't get that third A, could you? You're right, couldn't get it, couldn't get it. Tried to pay the guy, wouldn't accept my money, so couldn't get it. And so the idea contained that if that's the way that you were raised and you feel like if there's some type of failure or some type of lack of zeal or energy on your part, then, then God's just unhappy with you, he's just pleased with you. And so anytime you hear somebody talk about service, you begin to feel this overriding sense of guilt. And so if that's you this morning, if, you, if this overriding sense of guilt begins to well up in you, well up in your heart, let me just say, tamp that back down, okay? This is not meant to guilt you into taking on something that's not yours. You don't serve to get the love of God. It's unapproachable. You can't do that. You cannot serve to enter into heaven. You serve on the basis that God is already well-pleased in Jesus and of you. So as we are Christians and we come to God and we serve him, we serve from a place of already being loved, not to be loved. Do you see the distinction, the difference there? So our service to God is done from this place of security. Our service to God is done to this place because we recognize that his love is already visited upon us in the person of Jesus Christ, and we are serving him because we love him. We are not serving him to get him to love us which is antithetical to Christianity altogether. But I recognize that, too, that there is this understanding within Christian circles that really all Christianity is is about this, this punctiliar decision. You made a decision in time to follow Jesus, and, and you're just kind of checked out. till you die or Jesus comes back, you're like, man, I'm really glad I took care of that early because now I can just live and do whatever the heck I want to do. We recognize that, too, is fatally flawed that in christianity the idea contained within it is not that service is exceptional but service is normative do you understand that and so we tend to have this idea that if you see somebody out and they're serving and they're serving in the local church and they're just this gracious person they're serving in the community we look at that and we say man they are a next level christian they really took this faith thing serious they need to relax a little bit they need to take it easy a little bit because we look at them as being kind of this outlier. It's because we've made service this thing that is exceptional, not this thing that is normative. So what I wanna start us today is this course corrective to that, and then we're just gonna walk through it a little bit. So service for the Christian is normative, not exceptional. Luke 17, starting in verse seven. Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table? Now, the sentence structure in this in the Greek is, is compelling us, driving us to the idea that the only answer they can possibly give is no. 
It's a rhetorical question, and the indication and construction that he's using leads them to all say no. And so he paints the picture. He says, you've got this guy. He's out. He's your servant. He's your slave, and he's keeping sheep. He's plowing. So brother's working hard. He's working hard all day long. And so Jesus asks the question. He says, so which of you, at the end of the day, you're going to say, come on in, prop your feet up, and take it easy? And so us, in our mind, in the 21st century, say, we probably deserve that brother's been working hard all day. But the way that Jesus phrases this, the understanding is that they would all say, no, no, this isn't what he does. He's been doing his job. He's been plowing. He's been keeping the sheep all day. No, he doesn't do this. Verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? And so the answer to this is a resounding yes. And so the expectation of him then is that after he has worked all day, I mean killing it, he's plowing, he's keeping the sheep, brother would come in, he would clean himself up, he changes clothes, and so he takes off this, this, this clothes that really just kind of stink of B.O. and sheep. They smell like dirt and lots of it. And so he would take all these things off, he would clean himself up, he put fresh clothes on, then he comes, he prepares a, a meal for his master, and he serves the master. And when the master is done eating... Then he gets to take care of himself. And so we hear that and we say, man, that's a little harsh. That's a little ridiculous. The guy's he's effectively working three jobs for him. He's, he's tending the soil, he's working the sheep, and he's also doing all the household duties. That doesn't seem fair. But Jesus says the response to that would be yes. You would, in fact, say to him, prepare supper for me, dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you can take care of yourself. Now look at verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And the response to that is no. Servant gets no thanks for doing what was commanded. He gets no thanks for working all day long, killing himself, doing this stuff, and coming in and cleaning up and, and reserving the master, and then finally getting to treat himself at the end of this. Does, does, he get a, does he get a thanks? Does he get an attaboy? And the response to that is a no. Verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Service for the Christian is normative, not exceptional. See, the way that Jesus paints it here, he's talking to the disciples, and, 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 and by extension of this, he's talking to us, and he says, you, you, you serve because that's an extension of what it is to be a Christ follower. And you don't serve for accolades. You don't serve so that, for recognition. You don't serve so that it's your funeral that will stand before you and say all these wonderfully amazing things about you. You don't serve for any of those things. You serve... Because it's your duty. You serve because it's your obligation. Man, I should not have signed up to be a motivational speaker, right? <laughs> if you want to motivate some people, walk into a room and say, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm not going to give you any type of enticement to do it. I'm just going to tell you it's your responsibility. And so go be busy. Go do it. This is effectively what Jesus says to them. They should have no, no expectation of receiving some type of accolade on the basis of their service. Service for the Christian is normative, not exceptional. There is no 
grading. There is no strata of we have this Christian who comes to faith and then there's some expectation or hope that they become one who serves. And if they don't, we say, that's okay. They're still a Christian. You see, to be a Christian is to be one who is serving, one who's investing themselves and working for the kingdom. And what this requires of us is a very particular heart. It requires a very particular heart. You see, the heart of the servant has to be one that begins to beat for others. And Paul really wonderfully, I think, describes this in Philippians 2. So if you'd go ahead and turn there. I think there are some temptations and difficulties of service. And so what I want us to look at is the heart of a servant and then begin to look at these temptations and really go back in and backload it into to how if we have the right heart, we see that systematically diminishing and deconstructing these temptations. So Paul in, in Philippians chapter 2, which is a wonderful chapter of God's word, but look at verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So he has this, this wide-ranging prohibitive for everything that necessarily satisfies self. So in, in the context of church, he comes to us and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So I set myself to do nothing that primarily gratifies self. I see myself not as just being selfless, but as being others-centered. Look how he continues to go on and describe it. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility, he uses the word here, count. Count others more significant than yourselves. And really it's this, this mental process of reckoning. So I look at Patty, I look at Chase, I look at Lydia, I look at Matt, I look at Amy. And I begin to make it in my mind this process of considering them, of valuing them, of assigning them a value higher than the value I have for myself. And this is difficult. Why? Because people be frustrating, right? They are annoying. We find weaknesses in those around us. We find reasons to look at those people around us and assign them a value somewhat lower or lesser than ourselves, do we not? Am I the only one in here? Come on now bunch of never mind <laughs> liars i was going to say liars. so he has this idea he says consider others more significant than yourselves and so it's it's, it's when we're caught up and captivated with this idea of, of completely investing myself in the lives of others i find that i i have no time for, for pursuing sinfulness in and of myself my prideful, wayward, greedy heart can't be fed because I'm investing myself in them. Look what he says, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so when I know them, when I begin to consider that they are more significant than myself, I begin to know what makes them tick. I begin to understand all the ways God has gifted them. I, I see natural talents and abilities that can be used for the expansion of the kingdom. And I begin to pour into them. I begin to disciple them. And they begin to disciple me. And, and we begin to see each other more passionately pursuing Jesus we begin to see each other more passionately serving and begin to see each other because I'm so invested in somebody else that when I'm in the course of doing my duty I have no problem saying that I am an unworthy servant so God's transforming my heart he's transforming my ideas he's transforming my desires and and so to say that I'm unworthy isn't isn't primarily a, a denigration of self. I'm not saying something bad about myself. I'm just saying I don't need the accolades. 
I don't need the applause. I don't, I don't need these things because my heart beats for Jesus and my heart beats to see Jesus made more prominent, more pronounced in the life of somebody else. But over the course of this, we recognize that, that that's kind of what most of us would say. This is the ideal, right? This is where I seek to see myself someday. This is the ideal. But along the way, we, we encounter various temptations that kind of lead us off course. Now, Henry Nouwen, in his book, In the Name of Jesus, described three temptations for the Christian minister, for the one who kind of finds themselves serving in ministry. He said the first temptation is relevance. And, and, and that's really contained, like, I want to be seen as relevant. I want to be seen as, as having some type of sway. The second temptation he describes, he says, it's the idea that we want to be seen as spectacular. So I want to be this guy who can leap off, and you're like, oh, he's going to fall. I want to be this guy who can leap off the stage and do amazing things, and I want you in some sense to be dependent upon me. And then moving from there, he says that we want to be seen as powerful. So we want to be relevant. I want to be spectacular. I want to be powerful. You know, maybe those are the things you find yourself uh, kind of moving and stirring in your heart. And that's certainly a temptation that all of us could find ourselves moving in. But as I thought and began to think, man, what, what about the, the layperson or when before I became, uh, before I was on staff, what are the things that kind of moved in my heart and what are the things I observed in church in general? And I think there are really four of these. And, and lucky for you, if you're taking notes, they all begin with the letter C. And so the first temptation, I think, within the church culture is to be one who serves as consumer. We serve as a consumer. Now, everything about our culture is training you to be a consumer, to be a value shopper, to be one who cuts coupons, one who, I go to Aldi for this, I go to Walmart for that, I go to Super One for this, I go to Brookshire's when I need something nicer, but don't mind spending a little bit more money, Right? I go over here to buy this because I don't want to be seen buying it. And so we find ourselves moving and, and, and doing these things, and we are making decisions as consumers. I buy this brand until it begins to disappoint me, and then I change to this brand. And so you're making decisions. Your loyalties are ultimately centered on you. And that idea begins to find its way into church, and so we begin to choose church based upon what things they have that satisfy me the most. Let me just be completely honest and, and hopefully not incredibly offensive. Some of you this morning, you, you left the church you're at, you've come to Ridgecrest, and you're looking for something. Man, I hope you find it here. I really do. I hope we have the, the programming or whatever it is that you desire to have, but at some point we are going to fail you. At some point we're going to not have that anymore. We're going to make a decision that changes in your mind. What, a, what this should be. We're not going to be unfaithful to the word. And if we ever are, leave, please. But if, if your mindset stays as one who is a consumer, then you're always going to be looking from, for something that satisfies you. But when we begin to think about this, we recognize that this is incredibly invalid. Moving from the idea of a consumer, some of us find the temptation is most readily pronounced in being a critic. Being a critic or, or perhaps cynic would be more an adequate description of this. You don't actually take part in very many ministries of the church, but you for sure have a lot of input. And so you look at women's ministry and you say, you know, Linda's a really sweet lady, but I swear, if she says one more time, and she would get to criticize, or, you know, men's ministry is pretty fantastic, except for this, if James Hall, just one more time. Or, you know, I, I really wish the church would do this ministry or that ministry. I really wish this change would take place. And so you're a person who provides tremendous uh, 
input, well, let's not call it tremendous. Let's just say a lot of, right? Tremendous gives the impression that it's valuable. <laughs> and so you give a ton of input and, 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 and you're constantly pouring out all the ways that things could be better. And, and so somebody might say, hey, would you like to serve? And you're like, whoa, I really see myself more as an outside consultant. I mean, you guys have some real problems. And if I were to get in there, then I may get lost. And, and then I don't know the forest from the trees. And so I, I'm over here. And, and from this very impartial outsider vantage point, I can tell you how jacked up you all are. You don't want to lose the outsider perspective, do you? That's a great side story. And so some of us are critics. We're critical in nature. And man, can I just tell you, that's just not helpful. Like we want the person who could come in and say, like we're doing this and it's distracting us from advancing the gospel in the lives of those around us. We need to stop. So on Monday mornings, the staff gets together and we, we critique the service and, and, and they critique the sermon uh, sometimes. Um, sometimes I just don't want to hear it. Like I know it's bad, we don't even talk about it. Let's look at next week. We talk about the music and we talk about it a lot. And so, but that's helpful because ultimately their desire is, is, is to see more people come to know Jesus. And so we want to critically discuss and we want to give, want to give positive feedback into how these things can be done better. The critic has no desire to serve. They have no desire to see something get better. All they ever want to do is talk about how things aren't living up to how they should be. And so moving from the idea of a consumer to a critic, we come to the idea of a servant of convenience. A servant of convenience is always looking for things to be better. And let me just tell you this, because Valerie, I was going through it with her, she's like, you gotta tell these people not to feel bad about this right here. You just had a baby, it's winter time. What does winter time mean? It means your kids are sick, and how long are they gonna be sick for until they're not sick anymore? No one knows. I'm sure somewhere in Vegas, there's a side betting on how long kids will be sick right? I'm, I'm saying that, that somewhat bug's going around one more time. Give me 20 to 1 odds, I'll take that. <laughs> right? So some of you, like you can't, you, you cannot serve. You work on Sundays, you work on Wednesdays, your job situation doesn't allow you to serve. You have some ability where you can't serve. I don't want to make you feel bad about that. Don't hear that. Don't hear that from me. But we have others that the reason you never serve is because it's never just what you want it to be. Now, you're not the critic. You're not the person who's going to say, this needs to change and this needs to change. But you're the person that when you evaluate service in the church, you say, well, oh, I would totally serve if these things would line up on a full moon in January, followed by an amazing St. Patrick's Day. And the pastor wore green. I'm like, I don't, like, how do, how do, you, how do you track that? That's insane. I'm just telling you, pastor, if those things would happen, I would serve. I would blow your socks off because I'd be such an amazing servant. And so you serve from this idea of convenience. You're always waiting for the ideal time to roll around. Let me just tell you something so that you can quit being disappointed. Service requires sacrifice. There is an opportunity cost to service. To serve in the church, you're going to have to give up something. You may have to miss a Cowboys game. I know. <laughs> Nobody's saying today's Cowboys game, right? <laughs> I'm talking preseason, the games that don't count. <laughs> what do you think I am, crazy? But you're going to have to give up something. Uh, service demands sacrifice. Jesus 
Jesus has this amazing teaching that is so incredibly difficult for us to hear. And I came across it a number of years ago, uh, most pronounced reading this book called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, Bonhoeffer was describing a phenomenon that he saw uh, in those around him, and he referred to it as cheap grace. Cheap grace, those who kind of use the grace of Jesus to do whatever they want. And so one of the things he taught about was this passage here in Luke 9. Luke 9, starting in verse 57, he says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this guy comes along to Jesus. He says, no matter where you go, I'm there. Like everything you do, everything you are going to encounter, I want to be there with you, Jesus. And so Jesus says to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So Jesus begins to say, look, I'm homeless like, we're not going to the Hilton. We're not going to the Hyatt Regency. I'm, I'm homeless. Like, we could be sleeping on the road tonight. So you begin to see that, whoa, maybe this isn't what I want to do. To another, Jesus turns and actually turns to this guy and says, follow me. And this is what this guy says. He says, uh, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus responds to him and says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus said would have blown this guy's mind. You see, for us, my dad dies, my mom's calling me, my brother and I are putting the service together, and there is some expectation, likely, that I preach the funeral, but certainly that I'm in attendance, right? And so even more so in the first century, in this context where it was this man's obligation to be there. Societally, he had to be there. He's violating every societal norm that could be thrown at him if he's not there. So what did Jesus tell him? He says, let the dead, he's speaking of the spiritually dead, let the spiritually dead bury their own. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Recognize that service in the kingdom requires tremendous sacrifice. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There is an opportunity cost for serving Jesus. But once he saves you, once he has ownership of your heart and calls you into this relationship, that it's no longer up to you to set the parameters of service. You see, because service within the Christian life is normative, not exceptional. So begin to see that this one who sets all these things that it's not convenient for me right now or it's going to cause me to have this sacrifice and your Lord in heaven hears you and says, yes, amen, I understand. No one putting their head to the plow and looking back is fit for service in the kingdom of heaven. And let's look at this last group, this last temptation. There are those of you in this room that as I went through and talked about the consumer, as I talked about the critic, as I talked about the one who serves for, from convenience, like all you want to do is stand up on the pew and say, Lord, have mercy on me. It's me. This is where my heart is. Oh, I just need to serve more. Oh, just show me where to sign up. Do we have a sign-up list where I can be like, I'm the, I'm the cynic consumer who only serves from, from convenience, and I want to serve now. I want to serve right now. I want to serve this morning. I want to serve tonight. I don't want to go to sleep again until I've had some more service. Some of you, this is your heart because you're a compulsive servant every time we ever ask anything we know that if we call you you'll say yes 
We know if we call you, you'll say yes. One of the reasons that we tend to have the same kinds of people serving and doing things is because we find people that'll say yes. We ask everybody else, they all say no, and we say, where'd that list of the yes people go? Let's call them again. One of the great misfortunes in, in, in a church this size is we have just enough people to source and do a number of ministries. But if the people that always say yes never say no, this is what... This is what ends up happening. You end up saying yes to something that somebody else really needs to do. They never felt that pressure. They never had time for the Holy Spirit to really get a hold of their heart and to move them and drive them to submit and say yes. Because at your heart, man, you are an amazing person. You long to serve. And so anytime you see a vacancy, you aim to fill it. Can I ask you this morning, if you're a compulsive servant, say no there may be some things that we just can't do anymore there may be some holes like we may have a live nativity with no mary right she's kind of a big deal like if you understand the nativity but we need the people that always say yes to say no so that those that never say yes will feel this pressure to move alongside and begin to say yes and begin to serve and begin to do not what it is to be an exceptional Christian, but to do what it is to be an obedient Christian. See, service for the Christian is normative, not exceptional. So you might ask, how in the world can we see these things change? How in the world can we see these things uh, remedied? Do you remember when we looked at the heart of a servant? A heart of a servant beats for others. A heart of a servant looks at somebody else and says that Jim and Rita, they're more significant than I am. It looks at Jeff and Allison, it looks at Doug and Sherry, it looks at everybody around them. And so you can go around and you can name, maybe you can't, but you can name all the various members and begin to say that Chad and Samantha, you begin to say that Carol B, you begin to say that Gay Hans was more significant than I am. And when I, when I really move beyond just saying that and begin to feel that, I begin to think that, then this idea of being consumeristic falls away because I'm so incredibly invested in the lives of those people around me that I can't possibly can't possibly bear the thought of departing and leaving them and i'm not so worried anymore that my needs aren't primarily being met because why because christianity isn't about meeting my needs it's about meeting the needs of those around me and this critic i find myself not not wanting to criticize those ministries around me but i find myself in this ministry as a whole that is in some sense god has prepared and tailored my heart and talents and abilities to step inside and to passionately leave in the midst of this and so i'm not criticizing this ministry i'm seeking to take part in it because i'm invested and my heart's been changed and my heart's been transformed and so this one who only serves out of convenience it's inconvenient to serve those around you right it's inconvenient to serve those around you unless you find this really wealthy neighbor who to serve them is to take money from them. If that's you and there's a house beside you, I want to move in. But I'm just saying those people don't really exist. They don't exist. To serve others is rough. They're going to disappoint you. And they're probably not going to thank you the way that you think you need to be thanked. Service in the kingdom requires sacrifice. It's normative, not exceptional. For the person who compulsively says yes, we begin to recognize that when you begin to think of those around you, you find yourself beginning to say no to things because you want to see somebody else step up and you want to see them serve. 
And you recognize that the kingdom of God will survive if you say no to service. It'll survive, it'll thrive, we'll see other people step in and we'll see them begin to serve. So we recognize that this is how it goes. We primarily need a heart change if we're going to be effective in service. I want you to think about something with me as we begin to close. The Hunt Baptist Association, which is the local association that we are all a part of, Ridgecrest is a part of, has 81 churches in it. And so this isn't just Hunt County, but it's kind of down to Emory, it goes up to Commerce. So there are 81 Southern Baptist churches in this. Now, there are a whole lot more churches than that, right? You drive up and down Wesley Street, you get 81. And so, not, not really. But just of the HBA churches, members... Members, there are 18,053 members, and this is last year's book of reports. Attenders, there's about a third that number. There's about 6,000. So three times as many members as we do attenders. But I want, you to, I want you to imagine something with me. If the heart of the membership begins to change and transform from being those who are consumeristic, critical, convenient, and compulsive, to being other-centered and selfless. We have 18,000 men, women, and children passionately pursuing the agenda of Jesus. We're serving the poor, we're serving the refugee, we're serving the marginalized, we're serving people that have nothing to offer in return. The orphan and the widow is typically how scripture describes it. If we see that group rise up we can have a profound impact on our society. But what that takes is sacrifice. And what these numbers show, roughly one-third of our members are in attendance for across our, across our association locally. What that shows is that by and large, the heart of people isn't this. It's a heart that longs to satisfy self. It's a heart that longs to be critical it's a heart that's waiting for some nebulous, convenient enterprise to come along to where they just have no, nothing else to do but to say yes. It's a heart of people that say yes to everything so that all those, the two-thirds of people that never come, never take part, never have to. Can I tell you, God longs for the people of Greenville, Texas and Hunt County to come to know him. God's desire is that people living in remote villages who have never heard the gospel would come to know him. And if we begin to be faithful and begin to see service as normative, not exceptional, and our hearts begin to beat for others and the gospel impact in their lives, change can happen. God longs to use you. He wants to use your time wants to use your talents, wants to use your finances, all for his glory, so he might receive praise, glory, and honor, and so that we might all stand unashamed and say, I am nothing more than an unworthy servant. Let me pray for us. God, would you help us move beyond pride? Would you help us move beyond convenience to declare quietly 
within our own hearts that we are unworthy servants, that we are not desirous of accolades, we're not desirous of applause, but we long to be obedient to you. God, would you lead the people, not just in this room, but would you lead the people of our community be so involved and invested in their local churches that we begin to see those local churches push back poverty, that they push back homelessness, the children awaiting in foster care would find welcoming homes in the Christian church. God, by the power of your spirit, would you lead us in the boldness to sacrifice for your name's sake? God, would you give us a heart checkup? And would you apply the truth of Philippians 2 to our hearts? Help us to truly value others over ourselves and help us to value you paramount over everything. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.